get started. Well, Ooh, there was, we go. That was kind of sexy. <laughs> that was kind of sexy, right? Uh, well, hey guys, welcome to the Love Well podcast. Uh, glad you're with me this week, and uh, we are we're live streaming on Jitsi, so we're gonna see how this goes. Um, I have with me my good friend Damon Moore, and uh, we are continuing the series on uh, real talk, real people, where, uh, you know, I kind of interview, I, well, I interview some of my friends uh, as they share about their experiences um, being being black in America. And most of the reality is that most of you that listen to my podcast, uh you, we're, we're pretty much all white, and so we have no no concept of what it is uh, that so many of our friends are, are walking through on a daily basis. So um, so without further ado, let's let's get going here. So Damon, I have known you for gosh, probably 15. about 15 years, would you say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So give us a little snapshot. Where did you grow up? Where, where are you from? All that, you know, give us, give us some background on you. I am originally from Detroit, Seven and Mound. I moved when I was younger to the suburbs in Chesterfield. And then I moved again to the country when I was in high school. And back to Wayne State for college, and then I've gone on to have a lot of different uh, jobs in my time. <laughs> you know, it's a millennial thing. We don't get to retire from one job. We get to collect, you know, dozens of experiences. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, currently I am in uh, Roseville, and I am finishing up my uh, master's degree in school and counseling psychology. Nice. And by finishing up, I mean, I'll be done in like, uh, about a month or so. Oh, my man. Love it. Congratulations, dude. I knew you were, I knew you were pursuing it. I didn't know you were that far in. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. That's very cool. So, so over the last few years, I know you've been teaching, um, and, uh, kind of what, what districts have you have you been in? I've been in uh, one district that was a charter district that is uh, in Detroit. Uh, been in to River Rouge, and one in Saint Clair Shores. All the districts are usually serving um, uh, minority populations that are lower income. Okay. Okay. So you've. I mean, you've, you've kind of walked through, um, you've walked through, I mean, you and I have had so many conversations <laughs> about things. Um, it's hard to even know where to begin. Um, one, one story, the, the story that, one of the stories that you told me that really stuck out was uh, you were teaching and some, and I can't remember who it was that walked into your classroom, um, but but he, he kind of was like, where's the teacher? <laughs> can you, can you tell it? Can you tell that story? Because I think it, I think it encapsulates um, a lot of what, a lot of what folks experience. Yes. So I was teaching in a middle-class suburb, which is mostly white suburb but the students are in this district mostly people of color mostly black students um because right next door there is a failing district that has you know essentially we've uh started getting a lot of their students anyway um i am this actually happened on two separate occasions i am sitting down at my desk on one occasion talking with a student and usually to work, I, I look like some version of Mr. Robbers when I, oh, excuse me, I look like some version of uh, 
of, I'm sorry, what's the guy's name? Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Mr. Rogers, Roberts. Mr. <laughs> Rogers. <laughs> I look like some version of him when I, I go to work. I'm usually wearing a sweater and a shirt and a tie and things like that. So I'm sitting at my desk talking with a student, helping a student out in the front of the classroom. And there's a, an adult that works in the school, comes in and asks, hey, where's the teacher? And all the kids are like, at his desk? <laughs> and I see all this unfolding. And they walk a little bit further into the room. Hey, where's the teacher? And the kids are, they're like getting borderline annoyed, angry at this point. They're like, he's at his desk. What do you mean? <laughs> right? <laughs> and then they are literally a foot away from the student that I'm helping at this point staring at me saying where's the teacher <laughs> as i'm the only you know full-grown man right looking like mr rogers at at the teacher's desk yep yep so um you know most of the students didn't really understand what was happening at that moment right um black and white kids uh, a few latino kids but they were just like, I don't understand what's going on at all right now. Right. And some of your listeners, viewers, may not understand the significance of that story either. So to break it down, the significance is that it's black teachers in America are a very small percentage of the population. Um, and that's for a number of different reasons. But it shows that it was very challenging for that person to view a black person, specifically a black male, which makes up, I believe, one to 2% of the teaching population in the United States. Uh, it's very difficult for them to view me in a position of power, authority, and uh, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Even though I made sense to be the only one to be in that role in the room, at the time and right. i was pointed out at least three times by a couple dozen students so in america black people have the honor of being both invisible and falsely put out front uh, on parade right yeah say, say more about that because i think i think that's something um it's that 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 is something that I'm learning more about and in seeing like I'm 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 not I know that I'm not ever going to really be able to wrap my mind completely around that that concept, um, but I I feel like that we're seeing that more and more, especially in the last couple of weeks, of that weird balance of invisibility and yet put out put out on parade. So what when you say that. Um, what are you kind of what's, what's behind that, that phrase? Black American culture is probably the most emulated culture in the entire world, maybe in the history of the world. Hmm. Everybody all over the world has adopted lots of black culture. Um, so one of the easiest ways to talk about that is to talk about music. American music is the most popular music in the world. What's the most popular American music? At least right now, it's probably hip hop. That was created by the black community. Right. Um, if it's not hip hop, then it's rock, which was created by the black community. So essentially every famous style of American music was either created by the black community or has huge influences, including country music. Right. Oh, absolutely. And so we also have to deal with the fact that, you know, um, I guess the conversation is appropriation and appreciation. There's a lot more appropriation than appreciation because appreciation also includes um, being able to not just enjoy the product, but also the people that created the product. And right now, um, the black people, while um, 
they may be enjoyed a little bit more than they have been historically. Uh, they are not as well received as they should be in most places around the world. And especially uh, in America, you know, where most of my experience has been. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so as, as you grew up, what, what, what would you say were some of the defining, some of the defining moments or some, some of the defining experiences um, that you, that you had growing up in, in Southeastern Michigan as a, as a, as a black, young black man, you know, growing up here. So uh, it's actually really interesting because, you know, I, I went from the inner city to the suburbs, to the country, back to the city, back to the suburbs. So I've had a lot of different um, versions of the experience. Right. Um, one of the first and earliest things that stuck out to me um, was I was at an elementary school in the inner city of Detroit, and I was friends with, I can only remember two other kids that I was friends with um, at the time. One was a black kid and one was a white kid. I think it was the only white kid in the entire school, honestly. Hmm. Um, and maybe not, it was maybe one of, he was one of three. Um, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was yeah. a very black neighborhood, black school. Um, I used to get picked on um, by a person and we all used to get picked on the three of us, but I especially got a lot of it um, because I was friends with the white kid. There was this one kid that was a bully. And, and for me, that was very confusing. It just didn't make a lot of sense because I was like, man, civil rights happened like 40 years ago or right. 30 years ago or whatever it was at the point. I was just right. like, I don't, whatever. Like, and I, I honestly, to this day, I can't remember any of the kids' names. Right. Um, but then shortly thereafter, um, uh, within a couple of years, I moved to the suburbs and the experience of racism took on a whole new meaning. Hmm. Uh, the first few years of my experience at a suburban elementary school were marked with uh, lots of racism where people were literally, uh, I was in second grade when we moved and then there's about a always every single day, probably three, four, five, fifth grade kids. So, you know, at that point to remind you, Second graders are like the size of a jelly bean compared to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the difference between a fifth grader and a second grader is like, uh, yeah, I mean, you can't even you can't even compare. I mean, they're like but grown, I will say, like grown men versus little little babies. Yeah. So I will say that I've always been big. So I was maybe the size of a fifth grader, but they all knew that I was in second, second or grade. third grade. <laughs> I, I, I got picked on endlessly because yeah. uh, just for being black endlessly, mm. um, you know, in my mother had to go up to the school a number of times and um, cuss people out. I think people might say, give them a talking to, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she had to go up there a number of times. Uh, so that was a big part of my experience from being young. I went from a high school, or excuse me, an elementary school with maybe one or two black kids, um, excuse me, one or two white kids to one with two or three black kids. Yeah. So that was the very big difference for me. Another thing that sticks out to me um, is when I was younger, and I have a lot of siblings that are all older than me, and I think I was still in elementary school at the time. I, I would have had to been. And we were a pretty good um, relationship with the, the high school administrators in the, at the high school that my siblings were going to. Um, so one day uh, on the front of the high school, somebody spray painted on the front, niggers go home. Um, so the assistant principal, uh, which was a wonderful, uh, little, powerful Filipino lady that would not be messed with by anyone. <laughs> right. Um, she brings my uh, one of my sisters into the, her office to, you know, check in with her and see how she's going because, you know, there's obviously that's uh, a lot going on right there. Yeah. And and so, you know, she says, hey, well, what do you think about this? And my sister says, 
Well, I don't know who they're talking to. I don't see any niggers in here. Or, you know, they're not talking to me. Right. Sort of thing. Um, so, you know, that's that's happening at the same time. So that wasn't my direct experience, but it was the experience in which I'm like, yeah, I mean, you it's, know, it's very meaningful for me to pick out. That probably happened when she was in. I, I was probably in third grade at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, even, and, even though it didn't, quote unquote, happen to you. Right. The, the impact on you was mm-hmm. was real and. And, and powerful for sure right and then uh let's see there is also um in high school <laughs> a few different things occurred so um one of the most interesting things is that in middle school i uh and this leads into high school when i was in middle school i was uh cast as the star of a play i did uh, you know, theater and drama all throughout, excuse me, middle school. And I was cast in my eighth grade year as a star of the play. There was a lot of actors coming up um, from my year going into the high school that next year. So um, the director of the high school plays decided to come down to the middle school and audition us for the play that they were going to be putting on in the fall. Um, there was only one role for a black person. Uh, and as far as I knew, I was the only one in the entire, you know, school that had tried out right. both middle school and high school. So I was just like, well, I'm the star of the play and there's only one role for a black person, <laughs> you know, specifically a black role. I was like, well, I guess I'm going to get this then. Okay. Right. And so, uh, you know, we get the cast list back. I didn't get it. <laughs> and I was well, just like. Hmm. <laughs> the role is specifically written for a black person. Right. This is, oh, well, okay. Well, whatever. That's a little bit weird, but okay. So I didn't think much about it until the next year I tried out for the, the play again. And I'm in a get it, cast into this play. It's called Caught in the Villain's Web. Okay. It's basically like a uh, snidely whiplash character from, um, um, what is that? Uh, the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm playing like the evil guy. Okay. So one of the things that was really interesting to me is that the director says, uh, by the way, you know, the high school is still pretty much all white. There's about 2,200 kids in the school. I think there's maybe 30 black kids. Okay. Um, so the director says, hey, you know, I put this play on when uh, a while ago, like 20 years ago, I put this play on here, and it's so exciting to do it again. I've always loved this play. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. So years later, fast forward from sophomore year to senior year, and I have this director uh, as an English teacher. Okay. And uh, I promise the whole story is coming together for oh, I'm, a beautiful – I believe you, man. No, <laughs> a beautiful, tragic ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we are reading the book Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Okay. It is – a novel about what it's like being a black man in America in the 1930s and 40s, uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, feeling invisible. Mm. So I am in this class, the only black student reading this book, and we have to write a paper at the end of it. And my paper was markedly different from everybody else's paper. I'm sure. And I was thinking, hmm, Either I'm going to get a really good grade or not. I was like, well, we'll see. So a friend of mine, uh, he read the paper uh, as we're about to turn him in. And he's like, well, you're right. Either you're going to do really well or really poorly. (laughs) (laughs) And so because my opinion was uh, directly different than uh, the teacher's opinion. Yeah. So the teacher eventually, you know, a few weeks later, we get the papers back. And him and another teacher that he had actually taken over for who had uh, been on sick leave, they had both graded the papers. And, you know, even when I first saw it, I was just like, oh, this is funnier than I could ever expect. (laughs) Because he gave me a 20% and she gave me a 10%. And they both said that it was... Uh, the worst paper they had ever read <laughs> and that she said that it was um, 
let's see. She said that it was actually offensive to her to have to read it because it was a waste of her time. <laughs> what? <laughs> so overall, for this paper, I should let you know that I had spent more time on this paper than any paper that I had ever gotten before, which I... A's and B's on all the other papers. And I spent about six hours, yeah, yeah I think, yeah. on this paper. And I got a 15%. Essentially, my opinion on the paper was completely opposite of theirs and how black people should fight for their freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. And so, immediately getting that grade, I look at it, and I was just like, hmm. And so I go talk to the uh, teacher, and I say, hey, uh, you gave me a 15% on this. What's going on? It's like, oh, well, it just seems like you didn't really understand the book. And I looked around the room and I thought, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that understood the book. <laughs> um, and all of my friends stopped in that moment. And they're all looking, literally the whole class is just looking like, what? <laughs> what is happening? And so I then explained the whole book in great detail to him in about five minutes. Right. And he's like, oh, wow, it looks like you get it now. I was just like, yep, so are you going to change my grade? He's like, well, you can rewrite the paper if you want. I was like, no, nah, I'll, I'll go ahead and take that grade. So fast forward to a couple weeks later where I'm looking around his classroom and I notice pictures up from old plays. And I look and I see on the wall a picture from the same play that I was in back in the early 90s. I was just like, oh, let me check this out. I was like, I wonder who played my part back then. Is it interesting that the only black person in the entire cast in 1990 in the school that had only 30 black people in the year 2000, that same person played the villain is that coincidence? Huh. Wow. So there's a whole lot of other stuff with that story, too, including how the director had been blatantly racist to that same sister that I spoke about earlier. He, he never cast her in any big roles. He, the main role that he cast her for were, uh, well, her most famous role from high school was being the maid. <laughs> And she stole the show on a, on from being as being the maid, and, but she awesome. was never cast as a lead. <laughs> and so, this is the same person that, as we're reading this book, he uh, decides to talk about his experience growing up in Gross Point and how, when the black family moved in the neighborhood, they were just like the Huxtables, and a lot of people were upset, but he didn't mind. They were nice doctors. <laughs> So, this is the experience. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so absurd. Fast forward to um, my friend, Kyle. You're, you know Kyle. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Getting married. Um, I was best man in his wedding. And it was at this secret club that is uh, like an old boys club sort of thing. They just rented out for, you know, uh, destinations for weddings and things like that. He sure. wasn't not he was not in the club. The whole club consists of wealthy old white men, essentially. Right. So one of the old old guys was there. I guess the president of the organization was there, and you know he's talking to me, and it just happened to be that the club was actually a, a club where they perform plays and they write the plays and things like that. And so, you know, I had mentioned, oh, yeah, I went to school for theater. He's like, well, we're looking for people. He's just like, you could be in our club. Wow, you speak so well. You're, how do you, why do you speak so well? <laughs> no. -uh. And he goes on no, and on. No. And on. <laughs> but honestly, I was willing to, to still get in the club just because I needed to make some connections. Right. <laughs> I did not get in the club though, because they, they wanted me to pay like a thousand dollar yearly dues or right, something. Sure. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> so, so well. these are, yeah. I mean, and he went on and on and on and I, I started to feed did into he, it a did little he bit. pat you on the head. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh um, so to make uh, that a little bit more real for some of your audience, 
It is a trope and a common theme in Black America to be told, uh, oh, you speak so well. Oh, how do you, how'd you learn how to speak so well when we are just speaking regular, normal English? Because it is expected that Black people cannot speak regular, normal English for some strange reason. Right. That, it, 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 those are the things that, um, you know, when we, I think, you know, when we start talking about things like systemic racism, cultural racism, these, these kinds of big hierarchy, you know, these big picture kinds of things. I don't, I don't think folks that look like me understand that, that all of that is a part of that conversation. This, this idea that, you know, we should be somehow shocked and surprised when that, that a black person can, can speak good English. It's like, they grew up, you grew up here. Of course you sound just like me. What? I don't like, but. Well, and and also to decolonize the mind a little bit, there's no such thing as good English. Everybody uses slang and (laughs) English is good. If you can understand it. Exactly. Exactly. The point of language is to communicate. And if you're doing that, then you're doing it well. Then you're killing it. Yeah. So to dive deeper a little bit into the you speak so well. Yeah. I literally just read this story this morning. A friend of mine that I've known about as long as you from college talks about how they've never told anybody this story before and how they were essentially assaulted and sexually assaulted by a police officer because uh, who knows what reason. And one of the main reasons that the cops started to do it was because they questioned an illegal search and they, and they said, I don't know. I don't think this is illegal. And they're like, Oh, you're mouthing off. You think you're smart. You're this, you're that. Why are you speaking like that? You're this. So I think, I don't know how many white people or how often white people are put into a dangerous or precarious position just because somebody thinks they sound intelligent. Nobody. I mean, maybe, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with nobody. Right. I mean, that just, that, that, that's mind boggling. Since we're, we're talking about the uh, police, when I was, uh, this was about a year outside of, uh, let's see, college. I was about 23, I believe. I am driving. I'm doing a sales job. I'm driving in my friend's car because mine had broken down. So I borrowed their car, and I'm driving through the downriver area in a three-piece suit, mind you. Mm-hmm. And there's a cop in front of me. Uh, a couple car lengths in front of me. Okay. No car between us. Driving down a main road. Yeah. And I pretty much drive the speed limit everywhere I go. Um, it just too much extra to focus on. I, and usually my uh, reasoning is I'm too black for that. Mm. I can't, I can't mm. speed and do all this other crazy stuff. because mm. the, the leeway, there is none for me. There's so yeah. much less uh, ability for me to get out of something like that. Sure. And so I'm just driving down the street. The guy's a couple cars and lengths ahead of me. And all of a sudden I see him pull into an empty abandoned uh, like store storefront area with a huge parking lot, like an old farmer Jack's or something. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as he pulled in, I was just like, Oh, this guy's about to pull me over. There's, there's literally no reason for him to pull in. I was just like, Oh, he's going to pull me over. This hundred percent. Mind you, he had been in front of me this whole time. Right. And so he does a quick circle, pulls back behind me, turn, turns on the light, pulls me over. And I'm just, uh, why? <laughs> why? So he comes to the win- window. Uh, is this your car? Nope. So I didn't think so. And I'm just staring at him. Okay. He's like, I was like, it's my friend's car. He's like, 
well, yeah, I didn't think you had blue eyes. So what that means for people is that he had already been running the running the car and been searching it the whole time that he was in front of me and trying to figure out what was going on because he had already ran the plate by the time he had pulled behind, back behind me. And this was like seconds. So, you know, he didn't think I had blue eyes because, you know, I borrowed the car from a friend of mine that is white and it was their car and he had already looked them up. However, he should have already been able to look up or wasn't stolen. Uh, so he then says to me, "And well, you know, this is the most stolen car in, in uh, Michigan, one of the most stolen cars in Michigan. And so then I say, mm, okay, what does that have to do with me? Right. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'll be right back. So he takes my uh, paperwork, my license, all that, and goes back to the car. To narrate what I assume what he was doing is trying to find all the warrants <laughs> that he thought that I had, yeah. <laughs> which I've never been arrested or warranted or any of this or that. So he comes back in a huff and he says, well, uh, you know, your uh, tags, it's, uh, you know, out of date. It's, it's expired. You got to get that fixed. I was like, hmm, is it? So he's like, this is just a warning. I'm not going to give you a ticket. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so at that point he leaves and I'm just sitting there. I was just like, uh, uh, something feels wrong about this. I mean, obviously multiple things. Multiple things. Right. But I go and look at the license plate. Definitely not expired. It expired in three weeks, but it was not expired. Right. So, a lot of people like to say, you know, there's only a few bad apples. I'm not, I'm not going to say that every cop is bad, but I've just given very clear, thoughtful stories in both education and policing, how there are systemic issues that I, my story is one of a million. My stories are one of a million. There's, there's nothing uncommon about th these things that have happened to me. Yeah. And they happen repeatedly over and over and over and over again. And if they don't make you question or ask uh, if that's normal or typical, that's concerning to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So as you, as you continue to, to think through this, process this, um, what what are kind of you know, you know when you hear somebody say, okay, well that's great, Damon. You know, that, you know th this, yeah, this, these are hard things. This is this is really sad. You know, you you know that sounds like you've had some some bad experiences. So you know, and and maybe you've got friends that have experienced the same thing. Um, so, so how do you fix it when, when someone says, okay, so tell me how to fix it. What, what's your response to that? Like, what do you, you're, what do you say to that? You're asking the wrong question. Say more. Uh, how do I fix it? That's for you to figure out. That's not on me. Uh, we asking someone how to fix it is like victim blaming in another way. It is not my responsibility to fix your life. And I say your life because if it, racism is a part of everybody's life in America. And that doesn't mean that everybody's, you know, out and out racist, but I cannot fix the things in your life that you need to work on. So in order for you to be able to fix those things, you have to be introspective. Mm. You have to be thoughtful. You have to be able to hold space for people and stories that you have never held space for before. You have to be able to be willing to see a new perspective. You have to be able to be open to saying that there are more than just one 
version of the truth and more experiences that are true than just yours or those of the people that you know. So when people ask me how to fix the problem, I'm going to, and, and not in a mean way, but I'm going to assume that they're not going to be helpful hmm. because they're probably going to be thinking and thinking and thinking and coming from an overthinking type person. <laughs> it's, it's not going to get us anywhere right. to, to continually think and think and think and think and think and think and chew on and ruminate. And like, if you want to bring some thoughts of, Hey, I see that these things are happening and I see that this is unjust or this is how I've addressed things in my life. Do it. There are plenty of places for you to be able to research. There are plenty of stories for you to hear if you want to search for them. What I am not about is someone saying, oh yeah, I'm in the fight. But they're only in the fight long enough to finish that tweet. That's right. They're, all, they're only in the fight long enough to not be bored anymore. They're so only wait, in the fight, you know. So wait, you're saying you're saying that virtue signaling on uh, social media is is not really being in the fight. Precisely. <laughs> Shocking, you know. Uh, and so the I guess. Oh no. Come back. We may have lost him. We'll see if we can get him back here. Hopefully Damon will come back. Um so while we're while we're kind of waiting to see if my man will be able to get back on here. Um I'm gonna well, we've got a little technical difficulty, so I'm going to do this, and we are going to stay live here, and hopefully Damon can can get back on. Um, you know, I, I think I think what what we're hearing a, a lot here with Damon is is the importance um, of of all of us doing doing the work that we need to do. And I think Damon is back. <laughs> yes, he's back. All right. Was it just me that dropped? Yep. Uh, yep. I don't yeah, know. I think I think you know. Uh, I lost weird. you there for a second. So, um, uh, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure how far you got. You you didn't get very far in what you were just saying <laughs> before we lost signal. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I noticed instantly. <laughs> so uh, the point is, if you want to know what you can do listen you can keep the space for people and so listen and keep the space they go hand in hand and that a lot of people think they're listening but they're waiting to retort and come up with something else to you know contrast what somebody says or to make themselves look smart or to defend the thing they didn't like. So, so true listening has an element of taking it in and a consideration of like, this is going to be with me for a while so I can chew on it. Yeah. And uh, I think we have to listen even to the other side or to sides that we never knew existed. Yep and hold space for those things. And then when you hear the story and you are entrusted with the stories that I've entrusted you and your audience with, it is then your responsibility in the conversation to share those stories in a meaningful way with other people who have not heard the stories. It is your responsibility to call out the people in your lives that need the calling out. Yeah. It is your responsibility for calling out yourself. And, and I think that's the, the, the calling out ourself has to start first, right? I mean, I, that's, that's, that's step number one. Um, and then, yeah, you know, I, I love how you put that, 
that you have entrusted us with with your stories and um and that's that's something that i, I don't want to take lightly because i think that's i it, you giving me the time today to just just listen um dude i can't thank you enough for that um and and also just kind of getting a sense of, at least at least from a lot of my friends that I've talked to these days are exhausting they're just hard and so the emotional spiritual even physical bandwidth um <laughs> just you know for you to give me this time I don't I just I I'm I'm grateful man I'm really grateful um you're welcome so I have one last question for you and uh, it's one I, I wanted to get, I want to make sure that we touch on if you still got a few more minutes. Yeah. Um, I got time. So one of the, one of the things that I see you share consistently um, about is, uh, is, is challenging the myth of the absent black father. Um, this seems like a lot of things that I, that I hear uh, as people discuss a lot of these issues is, you know, while there's no, you know, black fathers aren't involved in their children's lives. That's why we have all these problems. And, and, and I see you consistently push against that um, kind of that, that kind of that co cultural myth, I guess you could say. Um, so, so could you, could you just kind of share a little bit more about some of, some of the reality that that we see within the family structure in in the black community because i think i think i think that myth is one that's that's risen to like trope level <laughs> you know it's, it's, you know it's, it's really interesting that uh the myth is as persistent and pervasive as it is um because people that willingly and knowingly create the myth don't usually try to scare those immediate people next to them into believing the myth as well. Um, but, you know, white America has specifically created a myth that says that black fathers are absent and they've actually perpetuated the myth in a number of different ways. So one of the last things I posted on being a black father in America uh, maybe a month ago or so, was that black fathers, there's been multiple studies show that black fathers are the most ingrained and interactive in their children's lives, and they spend the most time compared to white and Latinos, I believe also Asians as well. So in America, black fathers, by most statistics, are technically the best dads. Yeah. So they spend more time on a regular basis with their kids, according to the studies. Mm -hmm. um, they interact in more meaningful ways, according to the studies. So why is this myth so persistent and pervasive? You know, there's a lot of anecdotal stories that people like um, when we're talking about racism. And then they say, well, that doesn't really count because it's just your own individual story. I can talk about how I, I'm pretty sure I spend more time with my kids than just about anybody else. And I'm super hella busy. Right, right. Uh, but I don't think that story is going to be meaningful. What I would love to be meaningful um, is a historical story for you. So the first project, the first government uh, um, housing projects, I believe it was, or at least one of the first was in New York it was built, was this New York? Yeah, I think. And I believe this was the same one that was built by the same guy that designed the Twin Towers and a few other places. He basically said that that was the, he wished he had never done that project before mm. and he had never designed it. Um, a part of the history of that is that there was a lot of people that were unable to get assistance for their family, poorer people, both white and black, but especially the black families, they were unable to get assistance from the government if they listed that a man was living in the house. 
So systemically, the system back in the 1950s, I believe, pushed the black fathers out of the houses. Now you could say, well, why, why were they so poor? Why, why couldn't they do their own thing? Yep. That's, that's a whole other systemic education. Right. Uh, and that when black America has built things up, they are repeatedly historically torn down by white America. I would uh, encourage you to research black wall street and uh, other things like the move bombings and things like that, where there have been things that have been built up organizations or wealth and they've been destroyed. So in America, a person that desperately needs assistance, which a large percent of a black America is uh, going to be um, needing assistance because we are have some of the highest numbers of poverty. But if you are also needing assistance and you have a man in the house, then you don't get the assistance. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the black men were erased because the families were like, hey, we need assistance. And the dads were like, yeah, we do. I can't get a job because this. I can't get a job because they're only hiring white guys. They're, this is all, you know, these are the things. That... So the story says that black males were forced out of the house on an economic basis. Uh, the pop culture story says that black dads are just bad fathers. Yep. yep. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's just, it, it's mind boggling. The, the power, the power of myth um, is it's, it's so significant. And I think, you know, and, and I just, and I just wonder, you know, is, is part of the reason we like to buy into this myth um, because it, it allow it's it's basically it's really just a projection of of the failure of white fathers um, majority culture fathers right so we you know I, as I look around you know as I look around a lot of the the kids that, that my sons you know that my son is friends with um, or I even think about my own experience growing up I mean you know a lot of a lot of our dads just weren't around um, and. You know, and, and and so it's it's a lot easier to say, well, we're not as bad as those black dads, you know. <laughs> and when when the reality is is, is just not true, right? Right, and right? So so it's just this projection of, well, we're we're not going to embrace our own failures, so we're just we're just going to project this over here on, on 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 these people over here because man, that that's a whole lot easier than actually dealing <laughs> dealing with our own issues. And it's also, uh, it makes you feel good to paint yourself, you know, as a, as a hero, mm-hmm. even though you, even though you may be the villain. That's right. That's right. It can, you can justify an awful lot when you say, but you know, I really am the best thing. I really am the best. I am so good. I'm so good <laughs> at, at all the things. I'm the best at the things. Yep. <laughs> oh, Damon, brother, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation and um and i am also really grateful uh that in in a few weeks uh you've agreed to to come back on and um be a part of a conversation with uh with a guy who you know kind of looks at things and says yeah systemic racism not not real um so i have a question what ethnicity is that person i'll i'll give you i'll give you a guess (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's he would be an he would be an anglo-saxon <laughs> so it's okay i'm uh 12 irish so we'll oh, be well, fine <laughs> see? I, hey, and i'm and i'm i'm irish too so we're good <laughs> uh, but the irish were slaves too so it's fine <laughs> that's right that's, oh geez let's not go that route right oh my god oh. So, i'm excited to have this uh this conversation with him and so when I, those pointers that I gave, what work, you know, what can you do? Those are the same things that I'll be using when I talk yeah. to this guy. I'm going to hold yeah. space for him. I'm going to listen. I'm going to take his story with me and let it change me. That doesn't mean that, you know, I'm going to win some argument that I don't plan on 
happen. Right. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, we're both going to change our opinions or whatever. Right. But I guarantee you, we will come to a healthy, wholehearted conclusion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and part of, you know, part of the good is, is, is having the discussion, right? Um, there's a, there's a philosopher that I like, a guy named Peter Rollins. Um, and, and he, he makes the argument that war and violence are the, are the things that happen uh, when you decide not to engage in conflict anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I keep processing that reality because it's like, yeah, you know, conflict happens in the, in the context of conversation and discourse and in, and in community. Um, but you know, when, when you decide you're not willing to have the conflict anymore, that's, that's when, that's when you're, you're basically saying, I, we're not doing this any longer. And so to be able to, to be able to have some, you know, some of these kinds of dialogues and conversations, I think are going to be good, hopefully, or, or they, yeah, I think so. or they might be lousy. I don't know. <laughs> we're we're going to find out. We're going to find out. So, uh, Damon, thanks for being on. And uh, guys, we'll be back. We'll be back in a in a few weeks with Damon and uh, and a guy named Nick Stumphauser, who's who's going to kind of uh, he's going to be a conversation partner, and I'll moderate. And uh, and we'll just kind of see how that goes. Uh, but next week, uh, I think next week I've got my friend Tyler St. Clair from uh, from Detroit. He's going to be on with us, and um, we're going to continue continue sharing stories. Uh, so. If this has been a mean, is this if this has been meaningful to you, uh, I would encourage you to share it with your friends. Let people know about the podcast. Subscribe to uh, love my love well channel uh, at danielmrose.com, where you can you can receive the things I write and publish. And I usually publish about three to five times a week, and it goes right in your inbox when you subscribe. And uh, also, you know, or if you're more into the video thing, subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Daniel Rose. But until next week, love well, my friends.